Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. I'm going to be honest with you. I've preached through Romans 1 through 7 over the last two and a half years or so. But I did that to get to Romans chapter 8. I love this chapter. It's probably one of the most well-known chapters in all the Bible. Probably one of the most well-loved chapters in all the Bible. As it deals with these matters that Paul wants us to grasp as clearly as we possibly can. Uh, this, This chapter basically, in my view, is an encapsulation of the gospel. Pure and simple. The um, uh, Derek Thomas, uh, an Englishman, uh, one of my favorite writers, Derek Thomas wrote a book on this, a whole book on the eighth chapter, and he entitled it, The Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. And, and that's exactly what Paul is wanting to show us here in these particular verses in this chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. It's, it's a lengthy chapter. It's going to seem like a far lengthier chapter time we get through with it. But we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to spend a lot of time, and next Sunday we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, and probably won't get any further than that for the next two weeks. It's that rich. It's that important. We know that the apostle, and I thought Todd was going to just preach my sermon in his prayer. You know, he got started on Romans 8 1, I thought he's going to keep going. I know he is. He wants to preach it as bad as I do. Uh, But In chapter 7, which we have just come out of, and you've had the struggle of the Apostle Paul finding himself doing the things he knows he should not do and not doing the things he knows he should do, and his focus was on the role and the purpose of the law. And and all through Romans chapter 7, Paul was trying to delineate and trying to lay out what what is the work and the purpose of the law especially in the life of the believer. And he showed that the law is basically there to show us that we can't do anything in our own strength. And we find ourselves struggling because of that. But if Paul's preoccupation in chapter 7 was on the law, his preoccupation in chapter 8 is on the work of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, the Christian life Paul is going to show us is essentially life in the Spirit of God. That is to say, life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. If you take the book of Romans and look at it where the Spirit is spoken of in this book, you'll find it's broken easily into three different areas. In in chapters 1 through 7, which we have just finished, the Apostle Paul mentions the Holy Spirit five times in seven chapters. After we get out of Romans chapter 8 and we move into chapters 9 through 16, the Apostle Paul is going to do a little more on that. He's going to mention the Holy Spirit eight times in chapters 9 through 16. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit suddenly burst on the scene 21 times in this one chapter. I think that means the Apostle Paul wants us to pay close attention, and I think God wants us to pay close attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, where that life comes from. I love that song that that the choir sang and that I forced you to sing the chorus to because it expresses, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
who gives us life, who, who, who brings life to us, that was accomplished on the cross at Calvary. And the Holy Spirit is something that we Baptists, sadly, don't give enough credit to, if you will. I, I even hear a lot of Baptists sometimes. Well, I hear a lot of people that aren't Baptists too, but, a lot of people, but I, I hang around Baptists more, so I hear it more in Baptist circles. I hear them referring to the Holy Spirit as, you know, the Holy Spirit, it did such and such. And, and they refer to the Holy Spirit almost as like some kind of inanimate object. You know, it did this, it did that. It's not an it, it's a he. He's a third person of the Godhead. He is a personal being. And Paul is saying, pay close attention to that in chapter 8. He's not downplaying the fact that God is our Father who created all things and who rules over all His world. He's dealt with that clearly and and who calls us to holiness. He's dealt with that clearly in chapters 1 through 7. He's not at all downplaying the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son, went to Calvary in our place and, and hung there for our sins as our substitute. Not downplaying that at all. But he's saying, listen, what the Father planned and purposed and what Jesus accomplished on the cross is now applied in my life and in your life by the work of the Holy Spirit. And don't miss that. Paul says, don't miss that. It's far, far too critical. But in handling the work of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, in talking about this topic, the apostle relates it to one other thing that's just kind of the overarching uh, theme, if you will, of chapter 8, beside the Spirit being mentioned so often, and that is the, 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 absolute, the theme of the absolute security of the children of God. The absolute security of those who are in Christ, who have been adopted into his family, who can by by grace call him father and look to him as sustaining and providing father. Paul wants us to see that those who are in Christ are absolutely and totally secure. Charles Hodge said, the whole chapter is a series of arguments most beautifully arranged in support of this one point, the security of the believer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, uh, I make bold bold to assert that the great theme of chapter 8 is not sanctification. The great theme of chapter 8 is the security of the Christian. However, he then goes on clearly to say, however, sanctification and security are intimately related. You don't have one without the other. If there's no sanctification, there was no justification. And if there's no sanctification, there's no security. There's only insecurity in that way. I titled this sermon, Really? Is that true? Here, verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's almost too good to be true, folks. There is therefore now no condemnation, none, nada, not a bit, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that you're secure. That means that even if you're struggling, as, as, as Paul did in chapter 7, and as we all do, struggle and sin and struggle and, and fall into temptation and, and struggle and find ourselves wanting to do what we know 
uh, wanting to do what we know we should do and not doing what we know we should do. When, when we find ourselves in that struggle, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to understand this. Christ has done such a work in your life. If you are in Christ, even though you struggle, thanks be to God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know what you're thinking. Can that verse be misused? Can that verse give a security that is not a true security? Can that verse be the, uh, a verse where somebody might say, hey, I walked an aisle, I joined the church, I was baptized, hallelujah, I, I've done all, I've, do, I've done, I've done, hear the I've done. I've done everything, so I'm secure no matter how I live, no matter what I do, no matter where I am, no matter what I find myself in. Man, I've done everything, so now I'm okay. If you try to use it as an excuse like that, you are misusing the Holy Scripture. Because what Paul is showing is that the key to there is therefore now no condemnation is for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when one is in Christ Jesus, a work has taken place in his or her life that has changed that life, that has made them different from who they were. And it's a life that though it be, may be fraught at times with, with struggles and, and, and problems and, and even continuing to sin because we do, that, that, that is that Holy Spirit at work within us that draws us back to the reality of we're in Christ and we confess and repent of that sin and, and turn away from it. Paul says, I want you to see this is an absolute truth. If you are in Christ, you don't ever have to fear. But if you are in Christ, there will be sanctification taking place in your life. There will be change taking place in your life. There will be a work that God has done that you didn't do by saying, I've walked an aisle, I've joined a church, I've been baptized, I've done all these things. It's not about what you have done, it's about what He has done. And I love, that's why I had Pastor Michael read that passage out of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, don't you know you were dead in your trespasses and sins? You once walked there. You once walked according to the, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That, by the way, is Satan. The, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, but God. I often say, you've heard me say, you're probably tired of hearing me say, but you've all heard me say that perhaps the most important word in the Bible is but. You are dead in your trespasses sin. You're walking according to the course of this world, walking according to the will of the, the prince of darkness in this world. You are doing all those things but God. Lloyd-Jones, by the way, spent... 10, 10 or 11 weeks on but God. I won't do that because I'm not in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
and raised up with him and seated uh, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus you would have thought Paul said would have said you were once living to children of wrath like the rest of mankind you're carrying out the desires of the flesh you are by nature children of wrath but you got baptized but you joined a church but you made a decision that's not where he goes now understand this when the but god being rich in mercy gives you life when you were dead in your trespasses uh, and sins and he made you alive together with christ when that happens i do believe you make a decision for christ you walk an aisle you you join a church you are baptized all those things are realities that that confess to the fact that christ has that God through Christ has done a work in your life. Those are all important things, folks. They're just not where you find your security. They're not what guarantees you a, a, a walk with Christ. That security is found in being in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. There's therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in who are in Christ Jesus we try to do all these religious things and by the way next week we'll do a comparison what's the difference in in Christianity and religion what's the difference in being in Christ and just being a religious person we'll we'll contrast those next week as we look at this this chapter it's an important chapter but 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 important verse rather but, but there's a difference in being in Christ and being religious. And Paul is wanting us to see that so clearly. And so as, as Lloyd-Jones and as Hodges said, Hodge said, this, this book is showing us the complete security of the believer, the true believer, the man, the woman, the young person who is in Christ Jesus. And, and he does it in three different ways through the chapter. I'll just give you an overview here. I, I, I should have done this first, but just see this overview here because it's very clear. Paul makes clear in verses 1 through 17, in verses 1 through 17, he says, understand this, he, there he depicts the varied ministry of God's Holy Spirit in liberating, indwelling, sanctifying, leading, and witnessing to, and finally resurrecting the children of God. It's a lot of work of the Spirit in verses 1 through 17. But it's all having to do with showing how He has done that work to bring you in Christ. Then the second section is verses 18 through 27, and, and that's, that's where the, the, it's portrayed that the future glory of God's children exist. The future glory of God. For I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Listen, God did all this work and He's doing that to prepare you for the glory that is yet to come. In that final freedom where, where literally the whole creation will share in it, not just you and me. Somebody asked me one time on that, does that mean at that point my dog gets saved? I'm not going to go there. 
And then in the third part, starting in verse 28, which is the verse that everybody knows and quotes most of it, or part of it anyway. But in verse 28, the Apostle Paul is going to emphasize the steadfastness of God's love as he works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he promises that nothing will ever be allowed to separate us from his love. It's amazing, if you look at this book, look at this chapter, that the Apostle's perspective literally is mind-blowing. It stretches our minds to the limit. Because in chapter 8, verse 1, he begins with no condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then in verse 39, he says, nothing of height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he begins with no, separ- no condemnation. He ends this chapter with no separation. As though something could... Jesus said that. Remember in, in John... He said, if you're in me, then you are in me, and I'm in my Father's hand, and you're in my Father's hand, and no one, nothing, anything, anywhere, at any time can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No separation. No pulling you out. But this is what Paul wants us to see. In verse 1, we see the first blessing of salvation. The first blessing of of our justification. The first blessing of God doing a work in our life. And the first blessing of salvation is simply expressed in the words, no condemnation, which are equivalent to the phrase that he used earlier, justification. Our justification places us in a place of no condemnation. Our justification being declared just in the, in the presence of God says now, you can stand secure. He, he said that in chapter 5. We, we rejoice in this justification which we now stand, which we now stand in His grace and stand secure in His grace. The opening statements of Romans 5 and Romans 8 complement each other, bringing a pot. 5, bringing that positive declaration that since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 8, it says, therefore, there's now no condemnation. Because we have peace with God, there's no condemnation. You follow that? It's very important to follow. It's very important to understand. Because quite honestly, a lot of Christians struggle with with what it says in in chapter 7 because They don't understand what he's saying in chapter 8, verse 1. They struggle with that. Why? Why could we say we stand before God not condemned when just yesterday or just this morning or just three minutes ago we sinned? I mean, we know from Scripture that God hates all sin. There's, There's no exception. He hates sin of gossip as much as he hates sin of adultery. He hates the sin of, 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 of tattling just as much as he hates the sin of, of, of drunkenness. I mean, you can go on and on and on. The, the sins are there. They're, they're multitudinous throughout the Scripture. But the truth is, God hates them all. And so if we have knowingly, and we know that we have sinned just moments ago or just hours ago or just yesterday, 
How come God doesn't say, Haynes, until you get that straightened out, you are condemned. Now, some, some will tell you that. Some will say, oh, this no condemnation stuff gives you a license to sin. And, and you just go out and say, whew, this is fun. I'll just sin all I want to because Paul's already dealt with. Are we to say that since, since where sin abounds, then God's grace abounds all the more? That's an absolute reality. So are we just to say, let's just go sin so we can get more grace? And Paul said, heavens, no. Heaven forbid. That's that's ridiculous but he is saying that if you are in Christ even when you sin that sin does not condemn you how can that happen well he's going to make that clear we'll see it more clearly next week he's going to make that clear in verse 3 Because our not being condemned is due to God's action of condemning our sin in Christ. Verse verse 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. So, So He can say, He can say, you need to grow, you need to mature, you need to, you need to confess, you need to repent, certainly. But you don't do that to get your salvation back. Think of David, King David, with Bathsheba and Uriah and all of that that went on around that. When he finally came to his repentance, he didn't say, Lord, restore to me your salvation. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And when we are walking in disobedience, we are walking in a way that steals our joy. It robs our joy. Takes it away. Because the Holy Spirit is there within us, Paul is going to teach us. And when we sin, the Holy Spirit is, is basically, we like to think he's whispering in our ear, but I kind of like to think he's saying, are you out of your mind? I kind of like to think he's shouting and saying, this is not what you're called to. This is not what you're about. This is not what your new life is. Repent. The Holy Spirit says that. The preacher doesn't have to. If you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Later in this chapter, he will argue that nobody can accuse us before God because God has justified us. Verse 33, I won't read it now, wait till we get there, but but he's going to argue no one can accuse you if you're in Christ, not even Satan. Now, he will try. I mean, how many times a day do I hear in in my ear, I don't think a Christian would do that. I don't think a Christian would have that kind of attitude. I don't think a Christian would say that. On the other side, the Holy Spirit saying, you know, he's right. But you know what? That's forgiven. You don't have to re-save yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't re-save yourself. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love that he's shown toward us, has made us alive with him in Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. And that of yourself. Then he's going to say, not only can nobody accuse you, but he's going to say later in verse 34 that nobody can condemn you. Why? Because Christ died in your place, and, he's applied, and that has been applied by his Holy Spirit to your life. So no condemnation is securely grounded in what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. No condemnation is not grounded on our good deeds or our ability or our, or our lack of any sin in our life or our lack of struggling with whatever. Our, our no condemnation is securely grounded in what God has done in your life. Don't miss this. The Apostle Paul said to the Philippian Christians in Philippians 1 verse 6, he said, and we know this, I am confident of this very thing, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you, what is, what is that? What is that beginning? It's, it's our salvation, it's our justification, it's our it's the work that he did to bring us to faith in Christ. He who began a good work in you, if it has begun, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm confident that he's in charge. I'm confident that he is strong enough. I'm confident that he is good enough. I'm confident that he, is, he loves you enough that if he started something in your life, he's going to finish it in your life. There will not be a question about that. Paul wants us to understand there is security in the life of the believer. So, so we look at this verse and we say, really? Is that true? I'm here to declare to you this morning before God and you as witnesses that that is absolutely true for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are trusting in Christ alone. Not trusting in Christ and their good works. Not trusting in Christ and their religion. Not trusting in Christ to kind of help us. You know, the old, old saying that probably the most quoted verse of Scripture in all Baptist churches, God helps those who help themselves. That's not a, that's not a verse of Scripture, folks. Matter of fact, it's a, it's a contrarian statement to all of Scripture. The, the truth of Scripture is that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 2 and the truth of Scripture is that Paul is going to make in chapter 8 of Romans is just this. God helps those who have no hope of helping themselves. Who stand condemned. Who stand under the wrath of God. Who stand in, in trespasses, dead. God helps those who help themselves. Might be a nice platitude for somebody who doesn't know the word but if you know the words you know that is a lie but it gives the idea well I've, I've got to do it so God can do it no God has to do it so you can do it 
just the other way around. So when Paul comes to this verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the, the question we have to ask is not, is there really no condemnation? The question we have to ask is, are we in Christ? It's a true statement for everyone who is in Christ. So how do I know that? Well, the scripture seems to indicate that the way you know that is you have a desire for Christ. There's a, Paul said in Romans 3, we looked at no man seeks after God, no one desires him, unless the Spirit does a work that gives you a desire for Christ. Do you want Christ above everything else? Or do you just kind of want something to make you feel good every now and then? Or you just want something that will get you a home in heaven when you die so that you can go there and, 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 you know, be on streets of gold and pearly gates and mansions and whatever. I mean, let's be honest. For a lot of people, if they can get the golden streets of mansions and the pearly gates and, and all that goes along with that, they really don't. For many people, there's no concern whether Christ is there or not. He can, he can move on if he wants to as long as we got all that. But let me tell you something. You don't get all that without Christ. And Christ is all that. That's the, that's the essence of it. Christ is all that. that, that's, what, that that's where our hope is found. That's where our reward is found. It's not in stuff that we might get when we die, but it's in having this eternal relationship, no separation forever with the Christ who redeemed us and saved us and gave his life in our place. Apostle Paul said later on in this book of Romans, I'm going to go ahead and preach the whole thing today and we'll just quit. Uh, he said, if, if anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they shall be saved. Why? Because no man can confess Christ as Lord except by the Spirit of God. No man can confess that. No man can walk in that. No man can truly believe that, confess in his heart that, that Christ is Lord, not Savior, Paul said, but Lord of my life. And believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is true. The resurrection validates the cross. The resurrection validates everything Jesus said, who he was. So that's why the resurrection, you know, some people have a problem saying, well, you've got to believe in the resurrection to be saved. Yeah, according to Scripture, you do. But I, I, thought, it, I thought Thomas Jefferson cut that out of the Bible. Well, he tried to, but it didn't work. Yeah, supernatural God does supernatural things to show us the supernatural power of the gospel, and it's the supernatural that gets you in Christ, not yourself. But I think I'm a pretty good guy. Surely God likes pretty good guys and gals, women, men. I'm going to get in trouble here with slang terms there. I'm sorry. We live in a dangerous day. God loves men and women who are good. 
God loves men and women who are in Christ with an inseparable love. God, there's, there's a, a general love of God for all people, of course. For God so loved the world. But there is a specific, salvific, saving love that God has for his people that is deeper than any ocean you could imagine, higher than any sky you could imagine, broader than any spance that you could imagine. The love of God is deep and wide and powerful and high and is a saving love. That's why Paul can say, for those who are in Christ, and maybe that's why Paul, when he came to the, the Lord's Supper in in Ephesians chapter 11, oh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, maybe when he came to the Lord's Supper discussion there, he said, look, examine yourselves to be sure that you're the faith. Examine yourselves to be sure that your faith is in Christ, not in yourself, not in what you've done, but rather in what he has done. Examine yourselves to be sure you are in Christ. Because for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. That promise is not to those who are not in Christ. Let's pray.